Let's open God's word and uh, turn to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll look at the final two paragraphs. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And a special welcome to anyone tuning in to our live stream online or watching this uh, recorded message later. May God's word bless you and help you. May God call you to faith in him through the preaching of his holy word. Amen. I'll read the passage this morning from the English Standard Version, the translation of God's inspired word, starting in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May God bless the hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen and amen. I remember the story of uh, an acquaintance, a young man traveling from Boston to New York City, I think for the first time, and he got off the train, and a stranger approached him and said, Hey, friend, uh, I, I need to, to, to get some cash and I only have a $100 bill. Could you change this $100 bill for me? And as the young man pulled out his wallet to help out, the guy grabbed his wallet and ran. The stranger was preying on the visitors to the big city, stepping off the bus or the train. He didn't, wasn't perceived as a threat. He was just a stranger. Perhaps he had a friendly smile and, and, and didn't seem threatening. We're normally, as adults, we're normally guarded with strangers, right? We wouldn't entrust strangers with our valuables. You wouldn't necessarily give a child to the care of a stranger unless the circumstances were incredibly dire. We trust people as we get to know them. And perhaps it's a stranger, but he's wearing the uniform of a police officer. And that evokes a certain level of trust right away. Or some other clues. The idea of trust and knowledge and faith are all interrelated. Let's take a step further in that direction. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has written the fact that All trust is ultimately dependent on knowledge. All trust is ultimately dependent on knowledge. We could elaborate on that and talk about epistemology all morning, but 
I think we get the point. We trust something the more we know it. Or if we don't know something, we are not likely to trust it. Well, one step further towards our sermon this morning, Kent Hughes has said about Paul here, especially in this passage, what Paul longed for and believed about the future, he says, had everything to do with how he lived in the present. What Paul knew about the future, what Paul knew about God, what Paul knew and trusted in God affected his life in the present he could entrust himself to that God because he knows him. And we usually use a different word when we talk about knowing and trusting. In the Bible, we talk about faith. And and really, that's what Paul introduces in these final two paragraphs. He makes it very explicit in this first paragraph, and in the second paragraph, he demonstrates it. And if you're a Christian, and if you're a Christian by faith in Christ, by the grace of God, you've been saved, we always need to have a better grasp on what faith is and how it works. I'm not likely to go like a talk show host with a microphone around the audience and say, can you tell me what faith is? But I'll ask you nonetheless. If you were to stand and explain to the congregation yourself what is faith, could you do it? It's that vital to who we are and how we live as Christians. Indeed, when we get to a later chapter of this very letter, Paul will remind us that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. How do you obey that if you don't know what faith is or how it works? Now, this isn't a long theological treatise in Paul's text about faith, but he does introduce the topic in verse 13. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith. And he talks about we believe and therefore we speak. We believe and therefore we do what we do in the present. So that's the launching point here to talk about this spirit of faith. In 2 Corinthians, in this letter, we regularly hear how Paul trusts the Lord. And so he presses on. He bears with uh, this church in Corinth that is is so contentious. And, And sometimes people there are calling him names and questioning his gospel. Why not give up on that? Well, he knows who God is. He knows what God has called him to do and that God is with him in that. And what's the worst that could happen? He could die, but he believes in the power of the resurrection. And his life is in God's hand. And he doesn't venture his life and health wantonly. But he walks by faith. And he reminds these Corinthians about it. Here in this passage. As he further speaks of why he does his ministry. He's already talked about light in the dark places. And how the glory of God has shown upon him. And the new covenant is working. Even though he's a jar of clay. Remember that from last week? He has confidence. And he reminds us that we have access to that same confidence by faith. But before we really unpack verse 13 and following, I want to spend the whole first uh, third, I guess, the the first heading of the sermon talking about faith and just laying some groundwork, doing some definitions and reminding you what biblical faith is before we see Paul's display of it. 
So let's do that because faith must be rightly understood. Let's look at this first point. Faith must be rightly understood. And and just a, a couple of footnotes, really, before we begin talking and defining about faith. You see, the term faith has been hijacked. If you didn't know that, uh, sorry to awaken you. Most of us know that. What do I mean faith has been hijacked? Well, our, our culture has redefined it. It may have started with some of the liberal theologians, uh, whether it's Hans Kuhn or Schleiermacher, wherever you taste, trace liberal theology back to, or people in our modern day with uh, uh, positive power, positive thinking, or Riverside Church in New York City or, or uh, a church in California. People have misunderstood faith. And even well-meaning Christians have bought into that bad understanding. They think, yeah, I guess faith is just a leap in the dark. I don't know what's ahead, but I'm going to jump. I don't have a parachute, but I believe in God, so I'm jumping out of the plane. Faith is some leap in the dark. Come on, where does that come from in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. Faith is not a leap in the dark. I'll explain what it is, but it's not that. Our culture has talked about that. Well, when there's nothing else you can do, you just kind of throw caution to the wind. That's their view of faith. They've hijacked the term so that when you talk about having faith, they think you're just wishful thinking like magic unicorns or something. Just be aware that our culture does not have a biblical definition of faith. There we go. And what they've done, they've not only gutted the definition But they've applied the concept of faith, which comes from the Christian religion, to other faiths. As though it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have some belief. There are other faiths. We've used that expression, I suppose, when we're talking of other religions, but we ought to knock it off. Because it doesn't serve the definition of faith well. If you're trying to present the gospel and call someone to faith in Christ, you've got to make sure they disconnect, that they unhitch from this cultural hijacking of the term. You're not calling anyone to make a leap in the dark. If you are, your gospel presentation is seriously lacking. What do we do when we present the gospel? We say repent and believe the good news. Believe the message of Jesus. Believe his words. Take God at his word that he sent his only son who historically lived, died, and rose again. His tomb is empty. Believe what God has revealed. There's no leap in the dark there. Okay, I'm a little wound up. Faith must be rightly understood. Let me give you a general definition before we talk about these three important elements of faith. Here's the general definition, and I'm thankful for J.I. Packer. His clarity in his writings is superb. Uh, Faith, he says, is an object-oriented response. Okay, the first part is very important. Faith takes an object. Faith isn't just a feeling, oh, I feel warm, I feel cold, I feel tingly. No. Faith is an object-oriented response. That means there's something there and you're responding to it or him. He says, faith is an object-oriented response shaped by that which is trusted. Namely, God himself, God's promises, and Jesus Christ as all set forth in the scriptures. You see how he starts with the general and then gets it very specific. Faith is an object-oriented response 
shaped by what you trust. You see that object, you begin to trust that object. And in the Bible, we're talking about the Lord, His Word, His Son, our Savior, the object of our trust and faith. Everything set forth in the Scriptures. Faith always takes an object. Our culture doesn't get that. They, they say it doesn't really matter what you believe. And you can be a person of faith until you mention the name of Jesus. Then there's a little pushback. So faith must be rightly understood. Um, it, it's not a leap in the dark, but as, as Dr. George Guthrie has said, faith is a step into the light. The light of all that God has revealed is true. So every time someone says faith is a leap in the dark, you come back. You ready? You come back. When they say leap in the dark, you say, no, no, no. The Bible tells us that faith is a step into the light. Come behold what God has said. Put your faith in this God, the God of the Bible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Pressing on. Biblical faith has, has three dimensions that are very important. And, and yes, it comes from theology. It comes from church history for centuries. Biblical theologians have talked using three Latin terms for these three elements of biblical faith. And it's very helpful. I've been a pastor. I've been preaching about faith. I've been studying it for 30, 40 years. And, and these three categories are all pretty important. And I hope they help you. They're knowledge assent and trust and you know when you say it in latin you have a little room to maneuver i just think these are the best english terms to describe it knowledge assent or we could talk about agreement or acknowledgement and trust let's take them one at a time as we understand faith biblical faith requires knowledge remember it's an object-oriented response so what is it you're trusting in I keep looking forward. All I see are plants. I'm not trusting in those plants. I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to know something about him to put my trust in him. Knowledge is required to have biblical faith. Leap in the dark. You have no idea what's out there. It's just dark. The Bible says, no, God, he made heaven and earth. Repent and believe the good news. You need to know the object of your faith. You need to know God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, as he was praying that high priestly prayer, 17.3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God. That's the pursuit of faith. Jesus said further in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, I'm going to quote from there now, and I'm going to quote from there in another two or three minutes if you'd like to look. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, presently. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and, this is what Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you have faith in God? You don't know God unless Jesus Christ has made God known to you. That's what he's saying. 
No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Matthew 11, verse 27. We could go on and keep adding to this. Jesus is the only access we have to God, our maker. There may be other faiths, other religions in the world. They have no access to the one true and living God. Sounds pretty exclusive, but that's what Jesus said. And I believe Jesus. I take his word to be true. I know it to be true. No one knows the Father except the Son. We put our faith in God. We know God through Christ. And we do that because of the gospel, what Christ has done and who he is. In 1 Corinthians, that earlier letter that Paul wrote, he described the content of the gospel. Interesting that he's trying to correct the church and call them to greater faith and love in Christ. He has to remind them of these basic things. You, you know this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. They've put their faith in this gospel. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's talking about the knowledge, the content of their faith, and he includes these things. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. No leap in the dark there. You've heard me say that's why Jesus died, in accordance with the scripture for our sins. He continues, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Jesus, death for sins, burial, according to the scriptures, resurrection, and resurrection appearances. Jesus is alive. Those historical facts are what the Corinthians had believed when Paul preached. Their faith had gained knowledge of who God is and what he does and what Jesus was doing and what difference it makes to us. We are forgiven because of the death of Christ on the cross. So biblical faith requires knowledge of God and the gospel facts, knowledge of Christ. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. These facts all come to us from the Word of God. That's why it's good to listen to preaching. That's why it's good to read your Bible. As God has given His Word and allowed it to be translated into modern languages, you have access to the revelation of what God has said to be true. And you need to know that in order to believe and trust. So knowledge is pretty important. You can't call someone to faith in Christ and they say, who's that? You can't just say, never mind, J-E-S-U-S. How can they believe unless they have heard? They need to know. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which we uh, both, uh, both of these we enjoy and, and turn to here at our church. They are the, the fruit of wise pastors and theologians over hundreds of years. And they carefully lay out. And in one 
chapter, chapter 14 on saving faith, they say this in the opening comments in this 1600s language. I think you can follow it. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of God in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. It's not just some spiritual uh, moment in front of a rainbow. It's the ministry of the Word. In other words, God gives us truth. God reveals We hear, and then we can believe. We know, we understand. It's very important. That's why sometimes in in sharing your faith with others, you, 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 you need to put out the facts. You need to share the gospel details. And you can add your testimony, but make sure you're talking about what God has done in the world through Jesus Christ. And some people might wrestle with that. To some, Jesus, the the name Jesus is nothing but a curse word or a swear. You need to give them the information. And the truth of God's word will begin to bring conviction and, and draw them to the loveliness of Jesus. But that's not all. Biblical faith requires at least these three elements. Knowledge and secondly, assent. It requires assent. Assent is agreement that the gospel is true and compelling. You can know something. I know something, I guess, from high school biology about photosynthesis. Kind of cool. I know that the the green and real leaves helps produce energy from the light. I don't find that compelling. It doesn't change my life very much. I'm not a botanist. But when you hear and know things about the gospel and you agree that they're true, and you find them convincing. That's what this dimension of faith talks about, this ascent. Do you not only know it, head knowledge, but do you believe it to be true? It's not simply enough to be aware of the gospel facts. You need to know, are they true? The American theologian uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield said, The conception embodied in the terms belief and faith is not that of arbitrary act of the subjects. It is that of a mental state or act which is determined by sufficient reasons. There's reasons and they become sufficient. What does he mean by sufficient? Well, they become compelling. Paul, when he first wrote to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, he said in passing, he's saying, how are you guys doing, you Christians in Corinth? He said, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, they heard his gospel and they believed his gospel. They, they took it as true for them, true as it is. You see, when there's ample evidence that something is true, it compels belief. When there's ample true evidence, huh, that, that evidence is all true, it compels you to assent or acknowledge that, doesn't it? And we, we know this functionally when we are in a group and someone's acting like a leader and the group is taking shape and this, this personality seems to be effective in leading and, and it's working. It commands your confidence as you see that leader. And we respond to that. 
I saw my doctor the other day, and he's much younger than me. My own doctor's going to be retiring. I'm thinking, could this guy be my next doctor? And, you know, and he's kind of like, at first, he's seeking my permission to, to probe, and how does this hurt? Or, so, I, you know, there was that getting acquainted moment. But then as he got rolling and he brought up medical things and said, this could be this. No, it's probably not that. And I saw more of his medical knowledge displayed. My comfort with him grew. When the biblical facts come and you begin to see their truth, you not only understand them, you begin to assent, acknowledge, accept them. Biblical faith with its propositional truths, is is rational. It is rational. It's reasonable. Faith and reason are not at odds. That's the work of the, the evil one, I think, who says, remember, faith is just a leap in the dark. There's nothing really over there. If you want to jump, go ahead and jump. But there's nothing reasonable to faith. That's, that's playing with the concept. Faith is the step into the light. See what God has revealed and assess it and trust it if it's true. You see, this other concept, this this leap in the dark or or faith being irrational, faith doesn't need evidence, that's called fideism. Fideism. F-I-D-E-ism. That asserts that faith is independent of reason or that reason and faith are hostile to each other. And faith is superior at arriving at particular truths. Fideism comes from the Latin word fides, meaning faith. And it means faithism. And you know a lot of isms are not good. Fideism is not healthy. It's not right. In fact, just this week as I was making more progress in the new biography of R.C. Sproul written by Steve Nichols, and I've always loved the ministry of R.C. Sproul growing up with it as a Christian, uh, I was reading this in uh, one of the middle chapters. Uh, At one event, R.C. said, the concept of blind faith was utterly repugnant. You can hear him saying that. The concept of blind faith is utterly republic. The biographer continues. The idea of blind faith or a leap of faith smacked of fideism to R.C. Of course, R.C. loved this notion of sola fide, faith alone. Fideism is not a reference to justification by faith alone. Fideism is the idea that you cannot offer any reason for faith, that you should avoid any kind of rational argument. R.C. Sproul called fideism irrationalism. He believed Christianity is rational and that Christians have reasons for the faith they profess. Can I get an amen? The tomb of Jesus is empty. I haven't adopted Christianity because it's just a a workable, pragmatic, uh, ethical system. I believe it's based on historical fact. I've stepped into the light of those facts and it's changed my life. So it's attested, it's confirmed to me that it is true and I assent to it. I acknowledge the truth of it. Having mentioned R.C. Sproul, you know that his ministry, his passion, his legacy... Focus on a single topic, teaching people who God is, our holy God. Because people need to know who to trust, and when they know and find that to be true and compelling, they give their assent. As Ferguson says, faith is more than assent, but it is never less than assent. We must believe what we know is true. 
And then the third component of faith. This is the one we're most familiar with, okay? So this is the word trust. Biblical faith. Knowledge, assent, and then trust. You can see it moves from your head to your heart. And the trust part, if you want to envision it, is moving out your hands, feet, and lips. You begin to act on what you know to be true and who you trust. Faith takes that object. I know about God. I believe it to be true. So I'm going to trust him. The key concept. Jesus regularly called people to trust him, didn't he? Isn't that what he was about? He came and he said, hey, follow me. He didn't just say, I have some data for you about the Holy God. If you can read it, I'll send you a link. No, Jesus said, follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Back to Matthew 11. We were there just a minute ago in verses 28, 29 and following. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Remember these verses when we get back to our text in Corinthians about the weight of present burdens and the eternal weight of glory. But here, Jesus calls us to trust him. Come to me, trust me, be my disciples, go and make more disciples. I am Lord, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Trust me, obey me, love me. You know, when you get to the New Testament book of James, which many of you are familiar with, you'll know that he has said, faith without works is dead. Should there be a fourth item here, pastor, with with defining biblical faith? James says faith without works is dead. Should we add a, a category of works, good works? Well, that's what this trust point really is. You see, when James uses that phrase, faith without works is dead, that unsaving faith is merely the head knowledge. There's no third element of trust. The works come when you trust and obey what you believe. If you believe that the Lord Jesus is who he says he is, you're going to obey him. You trust him. Without this third element of trust and its visible manifestation in good works and fruitfulness, your faith is in vain. Faith without works is dead. Knowledge and assent alone will not save you. There must also be the element of trust. And that's seen, that's visually seen. We see it in Romans 4 when Paul elaborates on this very definition of trust and he holds forth Abraham. Abraham believed God. Well, what did he do? He did what God asked him to do. He didn't just say, okay, I I believe you're God. It's true to me. But he didn't just sit in Ur of the Chaldees. He got up and walked to the land to which he was promised. He believed the covenant of God that I will make you a great nation, even though Abraham and Sarah were elderly He believed and he trusted, he obeyed, he went, he lived and served. It's essential to the biblical concept of faith. Paul would write in Galatians 4 verse 9, a little bit of a rebuke to those Galatians. 
He said, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He says, if you've come into the light, you know it, you see it as true, you've got to keep trusting it. How can you turn back? Trust is a vital element. How you live is the manifestation of your faith. Again, that theological document, the London Baptist Confession of Faith and the Westminster, chapter 14, is all about faith. And the second paragraph in that statement says this, By faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, dot, 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 skipping ahead, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. If you have faith, you are going to yield obedience. That's action. If you have biblical faith, you are going to tremble at the threatenings of God and embrace the promises of God. That's trust. This may be an epiphany for some who have known about God all their life. You may have known the teachings of the Bibles and heard a lot of preaching. But maybe at this very moment you must hold back no longer and put your trust in the Lord Jesus. Ask Him to help you. Not walk on water. Ask Him to help you trust and obey. Hold out your hand to this Jesus you know to be true and offer him your life. Saving faith requires that trust. Okay, so this is the sermon. We'll go a little bit further, but not much. The application here is, do you know God? Do you believe the gospel is true? Do you trust the Lord? And even even these things are not your own work. Ephesians tells us in Ephesians 2.8 that it's by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is a gift. I believe it asserts that faith itself is a gift. Ask God for saving faith. Well, what we'll do is we'll just look at a a couple more verses uh, and we'll save much for the future. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when Paul introduced this in verse 13, let's just look at 13, 14, and 15. Paul says, we have the same spirit of faith. Paul has what we've been talking about. And he points the Corinthians back to that. When you look at verse 13, notice that when it says spirit, it it should be, in your English translation, a small s. He's talking about the attitude or the worldview of faith. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit quite yet. That's fine. Paul has this spirit of faith, and it enables him to do two things, to proclaim and to persevere. We'll save the persevering, 16 to 18 for later, but 13, 14, and 15, Paul says, I proclaim, I spread, because I have this faith. Verse 16, verse 13 actually quotes from Psalm 116, 
since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. And he quotes the tiniest little phrase from Psalm 16. Because he knows about David. And in that psalm, David is tossed to and fro and says, I still believe, so I still speak. And the, the psalm goes out to, to show David speaking of his trust in the Lord, his delight in the Lord. Paul is saying the same thing. Because I have faith, like the psalmist, I keep speaking. This life of trust that Paul has, according to Dr. George Guthrie, forms the foundation for a life of proclamation. You see, Paul is no UPS delivery man where he doesn't care what's in the box, he's just giving you the box. That's not Paul. Paul, rather, believes what he's talking about and labors to make it known. So he has the same spirit of faith. And in verse 14, he also has a conviction about the resurrection. Knowing. You see now, verse 14, Paul is still talking about faith. What does Paul know? He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. He said, without the resurrection, your faith is in vain. So now he's still speaking of faith. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul was convinced about the resurrection. He knew Jesus was alive and so he kept working even when his life was threatened. See, that's what biblical faith does. It knows, but it perseveres based on what, it's know, what it knows. Paul was convinced In fact, Paul had met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And it changed him. Oh, you're Jesus? You're risen from the dead? Uh Uh-oh. He was confronted by facts. God made a revelation and Paul, faced with the facts, was compelled to believe. To repent and believe in Jesus. His conviction about the resurrection... We have a hymn in our hymnal, number 224, Jesus lives and so shall I. It says, death thy sting is gone forever. He for me hath deigned to die, lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me from the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. That same hope and trust was written on a tombstone epitaph 300 years ago. Uh, Kent Hughes has it in his uh, commentary, the story of uh, the tombstone for uh, a botanist, I think he was, Isaac Greentree, well-named. This was the epitaph on that tombstone. Beneath these green trees rising to the skies, the planter of them, Isaac Greentree, lies. The time shall come when these green trees shall fall, and Isaac Greentree rise above them all. Kind of poetic. Of course, you have to start out with a great name, like Isaac Greentree. You see, without an actual resurrection, our faith is in vain. But Paul knows Christ is raised from the dead. And he continues his ministry in face of difficulties. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, he knew that about God. In verse 15. Let me pause and give you an application or ask this question. Does the historic fact of the resurrection empower you today? Do you consciously in your Christian life acknowledge that Jesus lives? 
and he holds your life. And that he can raise your life up when you die, whether that's sooner or later. The resurrection is central to Christian faith. But finally, Paul has this spirit of faith to proclaim, according to verse 15, uh, for the glory of God. The glory of God gains, it grows, it's promulgated as Paul does his thing. Let's read verse 15. For it is all for your sake, he writes to the Corinthians, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul, knowing what he knows, continues to serve, expecting God to get the glory. You see, his faith determines what he focuses on. His faith determines what he wants to see accomplished. Many of us here and now, especially living in the United States of America, when we think of the future, we're stuck thinking about grandkids or retirement and not necessarily the advancement of the kingdom or the glory of God. One preacher I consulted this week said, isn't it strange that we spend so much time and resources preparing for the final 20 years of our life, yet we often fail to prepare for eternity or make differences in the lives of others that bring them into eternal life? It's interesting when you try to figure out what made Paul tick. He was no nine-to-five Christian. He was an apostle. He was commissioned. Yet he took seriously all that he does. It was for the sake of others. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Friends, we need to not only have a biblical faith, but we need to align our lives in promoting the glory of God. That means doing what he gives us to do. If that means being a student, being a parent, being a teacher, being any service that we give, is it for the good of others and the glory of God? You see, faith is not simply how you escape the punishments of hell. If we're talking about biblical faith, it's knowing what God has revealed about himself, believing that, being saved, and then serving him. The spirit of faith is given so that we serve. That's what Paul's talking about in this paragraph. And the next paragraph will be next week. We'll pick it up and we'll talk about it then. But let me ask you, are you focused on the here and now or focused on your retirement or focused on the glory of God if you have biblical faith? See, biblical faith understands all that comes to us, all the opportunities that we'll face, and responds faithfully to them. What Paul longed for and believed about the future had everything to do with how he lived in the present. He'll summarize that asking us, do we walk by faith or by sight? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for your word. We thank you for uh, a recovery uh, of clear thinking about the nature of faith. Father, I pray that for my many words, the truth of your word would remain. And that each of us would have a greater grasp 
of you and your word and our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May our faith be vibrant and strong. Help us to fight the good fight of faith and hold fast, even as Christ holds us fast. Father, bring much glory to yourself in us and through us, in this place and in every place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.